Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I am Manish Rath at Keller and Heckman, and I'm grateful to all of you for participating today. Uh, we'll just go ahead and uh, put the number up so that everyone who is on by web also knows that they have to dial in in order to get the voice. We have a really good topic today. Uh, OSHA has issued a, a uh, standards improvement uh, project, Phase 4, which affects lockout-tagout standard, affects other issues as well. We're here today to talk about the impact on the lockout-tagout standard. And I'm joined today by my partner and friend, Larry Halpern, a partner here at Keller and Heckman with me, and a practitioner of OSHA law for over 30 years, I'd say a good bit over, and, uh, and one of the nationally renowned experts in the area. So I'm personally grateful for Larry's participation. Uh, many of you who have been participating in the OSHA 3030 for the more than three years, the more than 36 or, uh, episodes of the OSHA 3030 know me by now, Manish Rath. Larry, welcome aboard, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be here. Well, what we're talking about today, Larry, is the Standards Improvement Project, uh, the fourth phase, which addresses a number of modifications or revisions to various OSHA standards. And a particular note for today's program is OSHA's proposed revisions to the lockout-tagout standard. I want to be clear, Larry, for our um, OSHA 3030 community members that this is a proposed rule that was published in the Federal Register and that we are presently in the comment phase. This is not a final rule. It's not an uh, implemented rule, and it doesn't have an effective date by which action items are uh, outstanding at the moment. Right. Comments are due December 5th. Um, the idea of the Standards Improvement Project, though, is to really address standards with outdated provisions that, for one reason or another, simply don't belong in the Code of Federal Regulations and they're simply withdrawn on the basis that they've been superseded by some other technology, record-keeping practices, whatever, so it no longer makes sense to maintain them. So it took real courage, nerve, chutzpah, whatever you want to call it, for OSHA to actually slide a, a lockout takeout proposal like this into what's considered normally a standard improvement project, which is supposed to be a non-controversial, okay, make things easier for people to comply with OSHA standards type approach. Yeah, and as a larger trend, it seems to me that this past year or more, OSHA has been busy in the waning days of this administration with trying to reverse through rulemaking or interpretations of other types uh, all of the decisions that are out there from the Review Commission or various federal courts that, where the decisions didn't go their way. They're trying to use the administrative process to reverse all unfavorable decisions that have been handed against them. And here's, I think, one example of that. Uh, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about. First, let's make sure that everyone is caught up to speed by giving a brief overview of the OSHA lockout-tagout standard with specific respect to the uh, limiting factor of unexpected energization. Uh, then we ought to talk about that landmark decision that in this particular case was an unfavorable decision for OSHA that they've, they've really never gotten over uh, involving Delco and uh, what that, that decision was about, the facts underlying it, so that we can better understand why this particular proposed rule came about this month. Uh, then I think we should talk about, uh, real briefly, make sure that people are aware of the existence of the other elements in the improvement project. And, and as we always do, Larry, here at the OSHA 3030, 
finish off with some practical analysis of what employers should do in light of this legal development. So with that said, let's talk about this particular uh, aspect of the lockout-tagout standard. Uh, I, I guess we should start off with the, uh, get, get the other business out of the way and talk about other aspects of the uh, standards improvement project. Uh, there are 18 proposed revisions in this standards improvement project, one of which is the one we're here for today, the lockout-tagout standard. The others, uh, as you say, should be just administrative, trying to revise up or update outdated requirements. Uh, I know just off the top of my head, since I know that members of our community will be using the box on the left to ask questions anytime during the program, I know one will, will come up as what are some of the other elements of the Standards Improvement Project, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. One of them for hearing loss suggests that whereas it used to be uh, that the, the standard was triggered with or recordables were triggered with uh, an audiological shift that was work-related, now they're asking that this be uh, that the trigger be not just work-related uh, causation for audiological shift or hearing loss, but that it also include uh, instances where the hearing loss may have been contributed to in part or even a majority part by factors outside of the workplace. Uh, another one that comes up in the Standards Improvement Project is the elimination of periodic x-rays and uh, elimination of the outmoded terminology Ronkin uh, imaging so, so that for a host of occupational exposures, the standard would now require only baseline testing and then testing uh, if circumstances warranted but not on a uh, required or mandated periodic regimen. Uh, so let's get those out of the way and talk about what we're here for today, uh, the lockout-tagout standard. So Larry, one of the leading experts of anyone I've ever met when it comes to specifically the lockout-tagout standard as well as anything else in OSHA, uh, as you know, the standard starts off, the, the scope of applicability of the standard uh, relates to unexpected energization. Uh, where it regards any instance where a worker would access machinery uh, while servicing or, maintain, uh, or performing maintenance operations. Uh, of course, there's an exception for minor servicing. So other than that, when regards servicing or maintenance operations and there's the potential for unexpected energization uh, or unexpected startup of a machine uh, or the unexpected release of stored energy, the lockout-tagout standard applies and all of the requirements within the lockout-tagout standard. This is, I think, a significant limiting feature to the scope of applicability of the standard. And we have examined this very carefully, this limiting feature of unexpected energization, when advising clients on compliance issues and when defending them in citations around the nation, both in federal and state plan states where we've represented employers against citations, We've looked at this as being a very critical limiting feature. The fact that energization or startup of a machine, if unexpected, would catapult the uh, exposure into the scope of applicability of the lockout-tagout standard. So with that said, the proposed change in this proposed rule uh, is that OSHA proposes to remove the word unexpected from the phrase unexpected energization 
strangely because OSHA believes that the term unexpected has been misinterpreted and misunderstood by review commission or courts to mean uh, any instance where energization or startup is not expected. And they say, no, that's not what we meant at all by unexpected. So we think it's cleaner and easier to understand if we just take the word unexpected out. To understand why OSHA takes this view, it's important to go back to uh, a longstanding decision coming out of the, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit involving GM Delco. And uh, Larry, I wonder if you can walk us through the facts in that case uh, and give us an understanding of why the idea of unexpected energization seems to be so uh, upsetting for OSHA at this stage, post-GM uh, Delco. Well, there's two reasons. One is I think the agency has a misunderstanding or narrow interpretation of what the case stood for. But in the Delco case, there was a manufacturing cell on an automated manufacturing line. Someone needed to go inside this, if you want to call it this gated area, in order to make an adjustment, which required opening the interlocked gate and going inside within the interlocked area and making an adjustment. And the interlocked gate, Larry, is interlocked to the energization of the whole machinery inside the gated area. What the interlock gate is, is basically a control circuit, which interrupts power to the power circuits, but doesn't actually de-energize them. However, once the interlock gate is open in order to restart the machine into an automated mode, the gate would have to be closed, and then there were a series of buttons that had to be pushed in a certain sequence with delays and alarms in between them. So as a result, even if the gate were closed behind the person who walked inside of it and somebody started pushing all these buttons, it would take a significant period of time with delays and bills. And under those circumstances, the court said it was totally unreasonable to say that it would be unexpected for an employee who was hearing and seeing because of bells and sirens, sirens and yeah. lights to not know that the machine was starting up in plenty of time to self either leave the area, um, probably by opening the interlock gate, which would have stopped the whole process down, or told somebody else in the area to stop doing that. Um, I think the important thing is, at least with respect to our clients, most of them didn't look at it simply as, okay, here's an interlock gate. It's going to shut behind somebody, and, and therefore we need bells and whistles and delays. It was, okay, if the court says an interlock gate with bells and whistles and delays is inadequate protection, then obviously if you open the interlock gate and you lock it open so it can't be closed, that eliminates any possibility of the machine starting up. And I think more companies rely on that principle than the idea that there's going to be delays and give people adequate time to get out of an area like that. Unfortunately, OSHA didn't seem to recognize that and went off on this very limited, narrow scenario and decided that it needed to be overturned without considering the broader principle the case had established. So, so just to elaborate, when a person's inside that gated area and the alarms, audible alarms are going off and the sirens are flashing visibly, I'm sorry, the flashing lights are flashing visibly, uh, the amount of time after that that it a worker had to leave the gated area was sufficiently long that they could have still taken time to pick up their tools and walk extremely slowly and still leave the gated area. And that would have still, as you said, required 
that the gate would have been closed that all, the whole time. And as you say, to exit the gated area, you'd have to reopen it, which would have required somebody to actively recommence the whole sequence. It would require a second person to ignore the fact that somebody was inside the gated area and start the process all back up. So now that's, a, a I think, maybe one of the best-case scenarios for clear expectation of re-energization. Are there other examples that you and I have worked on where expected versus unexpected energization has come in play without the necessity of such an elaborate uh, scheme of interlock gates, uh, audible and visible warnings? Well, the one area I just mentioned was the idea that if the gate can be locked open, and it doesn't really matter whether closing the gate requires a large number of sequence delays and alarms and things like that, because if you lock the gate open and the machine can't be restarted without the interlock making contact and being closed, then it doesn't really matter, in my mind, how many delays you have. And the, the issue is... There's, there's another, there's another two, though, that I was uh, thinking of, and one is with RFID, the, there can be a sensor that detects the presence of an employee, Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another with laser uh, or I beams that are uh, tripped and would prevent in the same manner as the interlocking gate. So there's a host of automated uh, circuitry concepts right. mm-hmm. that would be different from the Delco case, but nevertheless have the same sort of automated effect of uh, of uh, breaking, putting a break on on the restarting of the machine. Right. So the the critical point is, as you're suggesting by this point, um, there are many ways of developing control circuits that are far more reliable than relying on an employee to actually lock out. However, there's a provision in the lockout standard that says you have to use an energy isolating device to lock out energy, and the control circuits are not energy isolating devices. So what happened in this case is the court said unexpected has to be given some meaning. In this particular case, you can't have unexpected energization, and therefore, in effect, control circuits in this scenario would be a reliable way of preventing someone from being injured and therefore exclude this particular activity from lockout. And then OSHA has gone on since that case to acknowledge that there might be some circumstances where machine guarding principles involving the same kind of things we're talking about could be an effective alternative to lockout, but has never clarified what they are, has largely declined to update the lockout tagout standard to reflect the fact that control circuitry has evolved to the point where it is more reliable than relying on an employee to lockout because you're really now relying on the employee to carry out an administrative task as opposed to relying on the design machine to protect the employee whether they do it or not, and having failed to recognize technology or do anything to acknowledge it and advance this standard forward, I think the feeling at least that that I have and people involved in in this issue feel is the agency is going backwards here by taking away language that would tend to recognize the alternative of effective machine guarding and, in effect, trap us into relying on administrative use of lockout-tagout, which, of course, we can't rely on employees to do because that's easy to enforce, whereas if you have 
the machine like GM had in that case, you know, let's say there were 13 buttons and sequences, the next machine has seven and then six and then five, and then where, where do you get down to the point where it's no longer quite as long a delay? In addition to that, even if you have the lock gate like I'm talking about, that requires the compliance officer to either accept an employer's representation, go look to see how the case, the machine's been certified by a manufacturer, or do some additional analysis to determine whether the machine guarding is effective. And well, that should be OSHA's obligation. They don't seem to be willing to take the resources to do that kind of analysis unless they're forced to. Well, in fact, that's that's one of the reasons that they gave in this um, standards improvement project uh, proposed rule change, uh, Larry. So I'm glad you mentioned that. When I look at what OSHA's position is for why it's wanting to eliminate the idea of unexpected from unexpected energization, they did say that. They said, you know, it's just too difficult for the compliance safety and health officers, the inspectors, to figure out whether or not your particular alternative to lockout is sufficient. And it would require them to use an 11-point question and answer, 11-factor test for figuring out the sufficiency of your alternative system. And we've already developed that 11-point system, but it really is something that we'd have to do on a case-by-case basis. Uh, Never you mind that with uh, almost all OSHA standards, everything should be judged on a case-by-case basis, Uh, and that is particularly true for uh, standards where they don't spell out a specific PEL, for example, uh, but they leave the employer to figure out how to comply with the standard. Uh, that that's not really the point here, OSHA says. Here, we just don't want to have to do it on a case-by-case basis to see if you've come up with a, a equally sufficient, or indeed, Larry, as you pointed out, some, in some cases, far superior system. Uh, we just want you to do lockout. And so that's one of the arguments they made for this. Uh, another is that they just believe that warning systems sub- subvert the intent of lockout, tagout, and the intent of lockout, tagout is simply when an employee is in the zone uh, hazardous zone of a machine that could be re-energized. Remember, not unexpectedly re-energized, but anytime you're in a, a zone of a machine that could be re-energized or started up, that lockout is the preferred methodology. Well, that that really is a, a substantial departure from the under, common understanding in industry of lockout tagout. Not only since the beginning of the standard, but since well before, since indeed it was industry and not OSHA who developed the concept of lockout and tagout. Uh, before there was ever a standard, and it was always uh, industry who had conceived the idea to be that this was the best method to use in the absence of better methods. Uh, it was the last resort. Uh, so, so when OSHA says it's the the intent of lockout tagout, I think that they're really rewriting history here, unfortunately. Uh, so, so as a result, they've said, look, let's just extract the term unexpected from the standard. The other thing that they argue and note is that in the shipyard, it, uh, so, so Larry, you know that there's uh, the general industry standards, construction, maritime, and in the maritime equivalent or analog to the lockout-tagout standard, they don't use the term unexpected. They've omitted it. And so OSHA's arguing, well, look, in shipyard, it's never been a requirement that lockout-tagout apply only to unexpected energization. So there's no reason why that should limit the applicability of the lockout tagout standard in the uh, general industry. Uh, I think that they certainly have an argument, but one could argue the reverse just as well. If it's uh, true in general industry, which is the overwhelming predominance of all workplaces, that lockout tagout only applies 
with regard to unexpected energization, surely you can insert it into the maritime section, and they don't really have an adequate way of addressing that argument. With that said, I think that the impact on employers is pretty significant, Larry. Uh, as you point out, technology has moved on since the idea of a, a lockout uh, concept where you put a, every employee is assigned a unique padlock and they can lock a machine out from its energization source. Uh, that's a very obvious, it's certainly physical, and a very apparent solution to the potential risk or hazard of unexpected energization. But it's also safe to say that there have been so many clever uh, devices that have been developed since the padlock that are now in effect at workplaces that are essentially many variations on uh, uh, an overall concept of control circuitry. And as you mentioned, machine guarding is another one where the minute the machine guard is removed, the uh, circuitry is arrested as well uh, and would not resume a complete circuit until the machine guard is reinserted. That's another example. So there's so many that, Larry, I think you made uh, an excellent point. I mean, I think that th these types of control circuitry are designed to overcome what's really maybe the biggest hazard, and that's that employees fail sometimes. Sometimes employees fail to follow the rule. Sometimes employees take shortcuts for whatever misguided reason, and that the control circuitry concept is designed, the original intent of that concept was to create fail-safe systems against the uh, essentially random uh, or, or uncontrollable elements that comes whenever you introduce humans into the workplace. And I think that that makes it, at least in that regard, superior or a better solution than relying on employees to always administratively comply. Well, there's more, I guess we, we should be fair. The, the other issue is there are many activities. I mean, OSHA's got a minor servicing exemption, but then they're very clear that something that's considered setup doesn't fall within minor servicing because it's not during normal production when machines being used for normal production activity. They've got another exemption for testing and positioning, but theoretically it's only available when you're actually doing the testing and positioning. So if you have a machine setup that requires locking out or tagging out 15 times unless you fall within the testing or positioning activity, and testing or positioning maybe takes some of those times out, but you're otherwise locking a machine out 10 to 12 times, that's really absurd if there are control circuitry that allow protection of the employee without having to go lock out the machine with that frequency. It's going to be incredibly frustrating for an employee to lock it out that way. It's going to take an extra amount of time and dollars that really should be used on something else when the control circuits provide the protection. And in some cases, those disconnects aren't really made to be thrown back and forth that many times. And it's going to damage them and maybe cause an arc flash issue that wouldn't have been available, you know, wouldn't have been a concern if it weren't for the fact that the disconnect was being used so often. So there are all kinds of issues that come into play. And in this kind of a scenario, if the control circuitry is developed to the point where it's reliable, it's far more effective and more likely to be used. And that's the, clearly the direction to go. Many of the ANSI standards, safety standards, have been developed by knowledgeable users and manufacturers working together to develop a safe standard, which is based on control circuitry and avoids the need to lock you out when it's ineffective. OSHA sometimes in the real world acknowledges and accepts those standards and in some cases doesn't. 
and then there's issues about whether machinery's been either designed and manufactured or retrofitted to a current standard versus older machinery. But with respect to the machinery that's up to current standards, I would think overall you'd find out that the use of control circuitry in those machines is more reliable than the effect of trying to lock out, especially when there's multiple operations involved that require adjustments and would otherwise require multiple lockouts. So one of the things that I think concerns me about this proposed rule is that if the folks who drafted the proposed revision are specifically targeting audible warnings and visible warnings as inadequate to stand by themselves in lieu of lockout, then on, and one of the bases for that decision is that the inspector would have to uh, evaluate on a case-by-case basis the efficacy of these alternative uh, measures. I think that that potentially implicates these uh, control circuit uh, alternatives as well, or automated lockout systems, interlocks, et cetera, uh, because they, the inspector will necessarily have to evaluate the efficacy of those systems too. And I just uh, believe that this has been implicated in this proposed rule because the same logic applies, uh, but but that it's an inadequate basis for eliminating the unexpected portion of the standard because uh, an inspector always has to evaluate whether or not the method being employed by an employer in any safety or health standard is adequate. I don't think that changes. No. And the, the alternative, which is absurd, would be for the employer community to say, okay, OSHA, if this is the way you would like to go, we'll go through a variance process. And then OSHA would get, I'm throwing a number out, potentially millions of variances <laughs> for the various machinery that could potentially be affected. And, of course, there would be no hope of the agency ever processing that many. So some states, probably in state plans, have been more proactive in finding generic approaches. Federal OSHA has not done very well. They've put out vague interpretations of what they consider to be alternatives that are effective as effective as lockout, but nothing clear enough for anybody to rely on. And here's where we are. And so instead of figuring out a way of amending the lockout tagout standard to incorporate the, the provisions from the updated ANSI Z244.1, we're going backwards. We're going to take away, apparently, in OSHA's mind, the unexpected language, which is italicized at least twice in the standard, and go back to something that's uh, going to basically, I would say, in many cases, shift the burden of proof back to the employer rather than the circumstances that exist now. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's talk about what we think employers should do. Larry, as you say, the, at the beginning of this program, the, the proposed rule has set forth a deadline for submitting comments of December 5, which is really right around the corner. Uh, and I think in the meantime, it's important for employers who are concerned about this to uh, coalesce around their industry groups uh, and trade associations and try and uh, prepare comments that uh, elaborate on the in impropriety of this proposed rule of eliminating the expression unexpected from the phrase unexpected energization. Uh, and I think the, one of the first things that has to take place is that uh, members of the industry who use alternative systems should start collecting data. Uh, and that's especially true for using warning systems, but I think it's also true for other automated systems like uh, Interlocks. And trying to evaluate whether or not existing warning systems uh, 
uh, are suitable and why they're suitable, what the infeasibility is of replacing them with lockouts, ta uh, lockout tagout systems. And by that, I mean the infeasibility, not just monetarily of replacing them, but more importantly, operationally. What are the operational concerns in your various industries that maybe OSHA has not contemplated or thought of uh, that, that make the lockout impractical or infeasible, as Larry had suggested earlier, where you know, perhaps shutting down and turning on uh, 15 times a day is not practical in that it forces employers to use other equally suitable or equally effective methods. With that said, that is our OSHA 3030 for today, just inside of 30 minutes. We're grateful to all of you. I'll say one last really important let me, point. Let me add something to, to what we're talking about. OSHA has asked for comment on this particular proposal. In my view, this is the time for industry to come forward and say, okay, we're not just going to simply respond to this, but to file an effective petition for rulemaking to ask OSHA to amend the lockout-tagout standard and incorporate the appropriate provisions from the Z244.1 standard take an aggressive posture and say this is not the time to simply deal with this but to go forward and make it clear that there are some significant economic consequences from this proposal and this isn't simply a matter of changing some words and then that would hopefully educate the people who are going to still be in the headquarters after the inauguration and people will hopefully take a different look on this and come up with a different understanding and work forward toward amending the standard which is now outdated by 30 years, probably. That's a really important point, Larry. I'm glad you mentioned it. It's not just the feasibility or the data about the systems in use, but, but the other arguments as well, including economic. Uh, with that said, one more important point. The OSHA 3030 is a program we've done for uh, over three years, and we do that free to our clients around the country as well as to all of you others who are listening in. But the one thing we do ask, when you get the email invitation, uh, forward that on to several other people, your colleagues inside your organization and your friends at other organizations responsible for safety and health, particularly the in-house counsel at yours and other organizations who are responsible for safety and health compliance. New members to the OSHA 3030 are the lifeblood of the program and will keep it going. We get a lot of positive feedback about how grateful people are that we do this, and we want to keep being able to do it, and that requires that you forward this invitation on to others. Our next program will be on November 16th, always on a Wednesday at 1 p.m., the next one November 16th, and we will uh, notify you of the topic by email, so keep your eyes peeled out for your inbox for invitations to the next OSHA 3030. We also republish our slides on KH Law slash OSHA 3030, and it's available on podcast uh, as well. We have a workplace safety and health group on LinkedIn, and we have other topics not covered under the OSHA 3030 that we sometimes post briefs, uh, brief summaries of on that LinkedIn page as well. Thank you all who are listening for joining the OSHA 3030. Larry Halpern from Keller and Hackman, thank you for joining me uh, for today's OSHA 3030, and I look forward to seeing you all again next month in 30 days. Until then, stay safe.